the TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, a podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who would have way too much fun in Atlantic City, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode... With Person of Interest not having a new episode, we're going to be catching up on Young Justice and Thundercats, as well as reviewing Castle, Psych, Bones, Chuck, Supernatural, and Fringe. Also, we will be revealing what Dan and I thought were the funniest parts in this week's episodes of The Big Bang Theory and Community. And that is also because Modern Family is also not on this week. But before we get into talking about all of our favorite shows, why don't you take it away, Nico? with our movie and TV news section. Summer Glau has joined the cast of TNT's new canine search and rescue show, Scent of the Missing. She joins previously announced Trisha Helfer from Battlestar Galactica, in the cast, making it TV's hottest team of sci-fi starlets on a show about police pooches. Okay. (laughs) ABC has ordered an entire season pickup for my favorite new show of the year, Once Upon a Time. This is, yes, this is great news, and I look forward to seeing how the show unfolds. The fairy tale drama, which debuted earlier this month, premiered to big numbers, and then did something even more impressive. It held on to its audience. Also from ABC, Tim Allen got a full season pickup for his new show, Very Last nice. Manning Standing. So I'm excited about that as well. Yeah, me too, because it kind of seemed like it was on the fence based on critic opinions. Exactly. So that's very good. J.J. Abrams' upcoming series, Alcatraz, about mysteries surrounding the disappearance and eventual reappearance of inmates and guards from the famous prison, has stopped filming new episodes. Oh, But before you panic, take note, while normally this would be a cause for concern, I don't think there's too much to worry about here. The show is due to premiere this mid-season and was greenlit a while back, so it's far enough ahead of schedule that it can afford the downtime. So it may just be that they're in a production hold because they've already burned through all the shows that they've had ordered. Okay. So it's not anything to be too worried about yet. It looks cool. I hope they give it a shot. Absolutely. It looks awesome. Is that going to be on Fox? I believe it is. Okay. More news from Fox. Fox has admitted to using lip syncing in the singing competition reality show, The X Factor, which is totally shocking in the most non-shocking way. Contestant Leroy Bell was totally busted when he was late in bringing his microphone up to his mouth during a group performance. In response to the allegations, Fox pretty much said, yeah, so what? The network insists that lip sync is what all the singing shows do, 
but that individual performances are natural. Then Fox went on to renew this craptastic show for a second season. Why? There are so many better shows in production than this. Why do they need a second American Idol? Idol sucks enough on its own. Ugh. On a somber note, Andy Rooney died this weekend. From 1978 to just a few weeks ago, Andy Rooney entered our homes and faithfully delivered the cantankerous opinion pieces that concluded each new episode of 60 Minutes like a sour candy at the end of a heavy meal. And just six weeks after retiring from the TV news magazine, Rooney passed away at age 92 from complications following a minor surgery. From my early life, he was the grumpy old man that would end each week's 60 Minutes episode, but he was grumpy in an Ed Asner's Carl Fredrickson from Up sort of way, where you couldn't help but smile at his crankiness. He will be missed in this business. Rest in peace, Andy Rooney. That was a great description there. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> nice. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yep, that's your sour candy to end a heavy meal. Yeah, I stole that phrase from the guys over at TV.com because they wrote it perfectly, and I had to. I saw that, and I was like, oh, Andy Rooney died. Oh, I'm going to steal that line. <laughs> well, kudos to TV.com, our resource for all information used on this podcast. So thumbs up to those guys. And also, thank you for providing with your information that we use on this show. So with that, we're going to move on to, I would say, the nice, yummy dessert that comes with the meal and the sour candy. We're going to talk about the Castle episode that was a ton of fun. A Heartbeak Hotel is what it's called. That's what it says on TV.com. I'm wondering if that was a misspelling and it should be Heartbreak Hotel, but... We're going to go with Heartbeak, because that's what it said on TV.com. So with that, Nico, take it away with the summary. The murder investigation of an Atlantic City casino owner leads to clues in two cities. While Beckett and Gates stay behind in New York City, Castle and the other detectives head to America's Playground to work the case and throw a spontaneous bachelor party for Ryan. We've said it since the day that we've discovered it. Our boy Nathan Fillon and the character he plays on TV, Richard Castle, are simply just big kids who are all about having fun. And with this week's murder mystery providing Castle, Ryan, and Esposito the opportunity to have a spontaneous bachelor party in Atlantic City, we got the opportunity to see our favorite mystery writer on his own personal playground, where he proved that he had the hookup, for the most part, in some great moments including Castle managing to snag tickets from some showgirls for a burlesque show, get him giggling when it was revealed that his past stay at the casino they were investigating involved him lighting his hotel mattress on fire and covering the curtains with jam. On top of that, we got some really enjoyable scenes between Castle, Ryan, and Esposito, where they were simply just guys hanging out, like Castle giving Esposito crap after Lady bashed on him for breaking up with him. The scene in the car, which is probably one of my favorite scenes of the episode, where Ryan revealed that his best man tended to be his wife's 16-year-old half-brother Nelson, got all the zingers referencing the fact that their investigation was turning their spontaneous bachelor party into the worst bachelor party ever. For me personally, 
My favorite part of the guy's trip to Atlantic City was the three of them dressing up as Elvis impersonators. And this included especially Esposito's comment about being around Elvis. And Beckett's priceless reaction to seeing Castle, Ryan, and Esposito in costume when she arrived in Atlantic City to wrap up the mystery. Going back a step, basically Beckett, while Ryan and Esposito and Castle were in Atlantic City, stayed behind to solve the mystery from New York. And this happened because Captain Gates wanted to prove to Beckett that she could be a good cop without having Castle around. However, the real intent behind the writers doing this was to get us to warm up to Captain Gates. And honestly, I'm going to leave the question on if it worked or not up to you listeners and you, Nico, because I'm not really sure if it worked or not. But what I can tell you is that I think that Beckett and the captain's disagreement regarding Castle was left at a stalemate, which will probably be resolved in Castle's favor, since the next episode in two weeks may put Castle in a position where he might be the only one who could save Beckett's life as she confronts her fear of the sniper. At the same time, we got a classic Alexis side story. Guess her rebounding from Ashley with a girl's night turned into an out-of-control teenage party that almost destroyed Castle's apartment. And unlike some of the scenes this season that we criticized for her being out of character, it was totally within her character to say to her friend that my dad might not care if the apartment gets trashed, but I care. And then she proceeded to pull the plug on the party. Finally, this episode was capped off nicely by Alexis scrambling to clean up the party before her dad gets home, only to have Castle stumble into the apartment, hung over, where both father and daughter collapse on the couch, glad that the other person doesn't know about the wild and crazy night that they had before. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode of Castle? I loved this episode. While it was not nearly as action-packed as last week's amazing episode in the bank, it was not meant to be. No. This episode was meant to be fun, and lots of fun it was. Castle, Ryan, and Esposito were hilarious as Elvis impersonators, and the entire time in Atlantic City was fun and funny. I'm just sad that Beckett missed out on all the fun. Yeah. As for the new Chiefs, Storyline, it did not work. Okay. Again. Again, it did not work. She does not seem to fit into this cast very well, and I find her constant nitpicking of Beckett annoying and pointless. And this episode, with her outright debating with Beckett about Castle's effectiveness, felt worthless, especially to the overall plot. I'm tired of her almost as much as I am of Detective Carter in Person of Interest. Oh, so, Dan, no, I do not think the Chiefs' plotline worked at all this week. One thing I did think worked this week was Alexis. Yes. Her scenes were great, and I felt that she was back to the almost pre-Ashley Alexis, the one that yes. we loved that was always hanging out with Dad, even though she said, I don't think hanging out with my dad is a good way to get all over him. She was still that kind of little girl that we remember from the first couple seasons, but now she's an almost an adult. So it was working on both levels. And I really liked the way 
the two of them interacted in this episode, especially like you said, that last scene where he comes in completely hungover from a night of debauchery with the boys, and she is just finished cleaning up the house from her night of debauchery. I thought it was perfect. I think the only thing that would have made it a little bit better was at the very end, she was like, oh, I can't take it, Dad, I had a huge party. You know, just because that's her character. She is the one that wants to be honest with him, wants to. And he and he would have had the opportunity to have been like, oh, thank goodness you did, <laughs> or something like that, you know, just to let her know that, oh, I was hoping you would have some fun. It was a really good scene. The way they did it, I think, worked. I would have liked a little bit different, like we just said, but otherwise, great thing. Well, she's got to be more mature than Castle. Yes, exactly. That's what works. That's why we enjoy her character, is that even though she's younger, she is kind of the one that keeps him out of getting into trouble, I would say. Yes, keeps him in line. That's what works with her character, and that's why we love her, so it was perfect. Yeah, despite the fact that I despise the new chief, I still enjoyed this episode immensely. Yes. I love this show, and I think it just keeps getting better each and every week. Well, I had Ryan and Esposito have been outstanding this season. What they've done with their characters, and this episode was just a capper to all the side stories and side plots we've gotten with them. I mean, they've went from two characters that were just giving like little zingers and funny lies in the first season to really full-developed characters that we want to root for just as much as Castle and Beckett. And you got to love it that they've been developed this far. I would say almost from the scene when they found out that Captain Montgomery was the other cop, from yeah. that on, they have been main characters. Yes. They have no longer been the side characters. It was growing before that for sure, but that was the moment when I saw it and was like, oh, these guys are awesome. That was a great scene. And then they became almost like the third and fourth lead of the show as opposed to the first and second uh, supporting characters. That's what I love about these characters. Well, Esposito was great in this episode. (laughs) I mean, they had fun with him. He had some great lines. I mean, normally he's a tough and rough, gruff guy, but he really had the fun role in this episode that I love that. Oh, women, am I right? Yes. Just props to those guys. They're just awesome. I love watching them every week and just how they interact. I mean, they can keep up with Nathan Fellin great, that I love it. So I think that wraps up things on Castle. It just brought a smile to my face. I know things are getting a little more serious next week, but it was nice to have a reprieve from all the drama. So with that, we're going to move on to a show that really had a lot of drama this week, and that's Young Justice with the episode Failsafe. When alien invaders defeat the Justice League, Young Justice must step up to fight in their stead. Well, this was it. The big episode we've been waiting for, where the Justice League went down for the count, causing the Young Justice team to step up as the Earth's last line of defense. On that note, the people behind Young Justice did everything that was necessary to give this episode the epic feel that it needed through an impressive animated sequence that showed the demise of the Justice League and well-storyboarded Young Justice fight scenes, which did an excellent job of showing the vastness 
of the alien invasion threat that the young heroes were facing in this episode. Plus the character development that came from the soldiers Superboy saved, calling him Superman, was a nice touch as well. Again, this threat came across as so enormous that I was convinced at one point during this episode that since the show takes place in an alternate universe than the continuity of the comic books, I thought the writers of this show were going to have the guts to leave all the Justice League characters dead and have the rest of the show be about the young Justice team stepping up to replace a fallen generation of heroes. However, once they started killing off the members of the Young Justice team, I knew that there was something off about this plotline, and I turned out to be right, as it was revealed that the whole alien invasion was a training exercise created by Martian Manhunter's telepathic abilities that got out of control due to Mish Martian's telepathic abilities being stronger than his own. In response to this revelation, I kind of got the feeling that we are eventually going to get a plot line where Miss Martian's telepathic powers are going to consume her in a similar fashion to Dark Phoenix, the X-Men character. Just based on the fact that Megan has a similar personality to Jean Grey in the comic books. Which means that the Young Justice team may have to battle Miss Martian in a future episode. So with that kind of foreshadowing that came along at the end of this episode... What was your thoughts on this episode of Young Justice, Nico? I liked this episode, but felt that the reveal at the end, that it was just a training mission, was old hat. Yes, it was different than I expected it to be. I was expecting a virtual reality gone haywire, rather than Megan's psychic link going haywire. But still, nothing we have not seen on other sci-fi shows like Star Trek, Stargate, or virtually any of the sci-fi shows starting with Star. In other words, Young Justice did their version of the virtual reality screw-up episode, which makes this nothing new and nothing special either. But Nico, didn't you just say that you liked this episode? Yeah, just because it wasn't new does not mean they did not do a good job telling the story. It's just that we've seen this before in other series. Farscape did it where John Crichton had to play his way through an acid-induced virtual reality game uh, simulation sequence. Star Trek Next Generation had multiple holodeck episodes that worked the same way. This is a classic theme in the sci-fi world, so fans of fantasy, sci-fi, and superhero genres have seen these episodes before, but we enjoy them because they can be a lot of fun as well. This episode was both fun and intense, with a lot of emotion action, and revelation of feelings amongst the team members. Artemis and Kid Flash seem to be starting to get real serious, uh, a lot more than we have seen before, and Connor and Megan dropped the I love yous, which were new. Yeah. So despite the fact that I knew what was in store in this episode, I still really liked it, and I really enjoyed it. So nothing new in storytelling style, they just put their own spin on it. And that's okay, because we like these kinds of shows. We like these kinds of episodes. And when our sh- one of our favorite shows does it, and does it a little bit differently, it's kind of fun to see that. So, yeah, I could kind of predict what was going to happen. I thought it was a virtual reality, as I said. It ends up being the two the battling psychic links. But it was still really cool. And a very high-impact, high-intensity 
episode that got you excited. I hope that this is almost a test run for a an actual invasion plotline for this show. I'm hoping that this is the writers and the animators seeing if they can pull something like this off and then maybe next season doing an actual invasion episode. Okay. But it, it I mean it wouldn't be to the level that they're killing off Justice League members that things like that, but it would be neat if this is a precursor to a bigger story arc with this kind of stuff going on. Because it was cool to watch. And I kind of liked the apocalyptic battle that was going on in this episode. It was just kind of great TV to watch, I thought. And the other thing is, for a while, just because of DC having the guts to totally reboot their whole comic line, I almost did, as I said, that prediction about maybe just the Justice League getting wiped out in this episode. I mean, I'm kind of at the point now with DC Comics that anything could happen. And that was a possibility for me there. But then kind of once they killed off Aqualad, I'm like, no way, this is a, the way it's going to go. Just because of it's kind of dumb to kill off major characters like that within the first season. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, when Artemis went down, you were like, okay, uh, this could still yeah. be happening. This could still be happening. Right. But Aqualad going down, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. But I also would have bought the whole thing that they thought the aliens were using Zeta beams. Mm-hmm. And that they were teleporting the Justice League off the planet okay, to capture them. I would have bought that too. Oh, absolutely. I thought that was a plausible explanation. Yeah. Real quick, do you see... Miss Martian going Dark Phoenix? It's always a possibility. I was not thinking that while I was watching this. And afterwards, thinking about it when I was reading through your comments. I think it's a definite plausible, but it would not be the way that I would have gone. Because then you will get too much of the, uh, you're just copying X-Men. This has already been done with the Dark Phoenix. Why not write something completely original? So I think that there's always that battle of things that have been done before major story arcs like that. If you get too close to something like that, you will be considered a copycat or not being original. So I'd like them to see maybe go a completely different route, but I don't know what that route is yet. Or put their own twist on it as a possibility too. That's always a possibility. All right. So now we're going to move on to another animated show that we haven't talked about for a while. Again, it was took a little bit of a break. Now it's back on. I still think it's going strong. I'm still enjoying it. Again, it's shaping up to give Cartoon Network a really solid Friday night run now with Young Justice, Star Wars Clone Wars, and a new Green Lantern show that will be coming out soon. That I'm looking forward to that, so we'll see how that goes. But right now, we're going to talk about Thundercats, which returned with the episode Burbles. <laughs> The Thundercats meet the mysterious beings who had helped them during the night, and they turn out to be the Burbles, or Robears. The Burbles treat the Thundercats with great hospitality until the village is attacked and some of the Burbles are captured. The Thundercats help their new friends, and a battle for freedom ensues. Now, because of our schedule, we weren't able to cover Thundercats last week, so we're going to cover two episodes today. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read my thoughts on both episodes with Nico kind of splitting up both sections with the summary. And then once I'm done 
Read my points. Nico's going to give his thoughts on both episodes. And we're doing this just to make things more time effective. So I'm going to get started with my thoughts on burbles. And basically, this week's episode, Thumped on Their Cats, entitled Burbles, gave a throwback to another popular franchise from the 80s, the Care Bears. But to fit in with this show's action genre, these bears, or burbles, were robots that enlist the Thundercats for protection from being captured and sold into slavery. And in my opinion, the interaction between the cats and the bears, known as burbles, would have come across as corny if it wasn't for the great one-liners from Panthro being disturbed about the burbles and kind of how cute they were. Uh, He just thought there was something kind of up about them and was kind of uncomfortable (laughs) about having to be cutesy and giving them hugs and things like that. So that was kind of fun to watch. And in fact, Panther really stole the show in this episode through repairing a damaged burble, showing the burbles that they can defend themselves through their ability to build, and Tim defeating this episode's villain with the Thunder Tank, and eventually warming up to the burbles by the end of this episode, kind of showing that Panthro is capable of being a big softy, even though he's unable to admit that and gets really mad at Wily Kid and Wily Cat when they make this comment about him. So with that, we're going to move on to my thoughts on the next episode entitled Sight Beyond Sight. Lion-O tries to reveal more about the Sword of Omens. Don't get me wrong. This episode had its action. But instead of fighting the bad guys, it seemed to be more focused on the Thundercats enjoying life. Through them having a fun-filled and really well-animated vehicle race to what they thought was the location of the next crystal. And interacting with the elephant people in this episode. Who taught Lion-O an important lesson in becoming king. Along with learning how to use the sight beyond sight technique, which was also, of course, on the classic Thundercats series. Again, with that being said, the action picked up from a good versus evil standpoint in the third act of this episode, which was just the third part after two commercial breaks. Does Lionel learning the lesson that teaches him the sight beyond sight technique comes from his eagerness to defeat a swarm of monster insects, attacking the elephant people. And as a result of going after these monsters, insects, and defeating them, he accidentally unleashes a giant rock creature. However, after being imprisoned by the rock creature, and then freed, thanks to the help of the elephant people, the Thundercats discover that fighting might not always be the answer, through Wily Kit, Wily Cat, and the elephant people using music to defeat the rock creature. And on that note, the idea of music defeating the rock creature may sound a bit lame to you listeners. But like with Panthro and the Burbles in the episode the week before, this concept was viable because it connected to the emotional aspect, or in other words, piece of character development that the song used to defeat the rock creature was the lullaby that Wily Cat and Wily Cat's mother sang to them before she most likely died. Finally, at the end of this episode... After perfecting the sight beyond sight technique, Lionel discovers that the crystal he's looking for is not in the elephant people's village. It has been moved to the forest of Magi Oar. But unfortunately, the elephant people 
don't know where in the forest the crystal is located, due to their long-term memory issues, which was an amusing running joke in this episode. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on both of these episodes of Thundercats, Burbles and Sight Beyond Sight? I was not a fan of the first episode. I felt this was completely whacked out and was purely used as a way to fix the Thundercats tank, which was an issue in a previous episode, and was playing to the very young audience that watches this show. And the writers figured that the rest of us would just sit there and watch this crap because we would figure there'd be something important to the overall story arc and we wouldn't want to miss it by just skipping this episode. I was not impressed, and I felt the entire story was a throwaway. Panthera was probably the best part of this episode, but even that was not enough to make me enjoy the episode. As for the Sight Beyond Sight episode, this was better because the overall story moved forward with Lion-O learning some useful information that will eventually make him a great king. And we're seeing that he is continuing to grow from the immature kid who didn't warn his father about the impending attack that he saw through the Sight Beyond Sight to now a much better leader. But the whole Wily Kit and Wily Cat lullaby defeating the rock monster was too predictable. When I saw the Thundercats fighting the rock creature, first I knew it would not work. Then I turned to my dad and I said, I bet they defeat the rock creature with that lame song. And sure enough, that is what happened. I've got to say, since the Book of Omen episode, I've been less than impressed with this show. It was so good up to that point that everything since has been sort of a letdown. So I'm hoping, at least in my opinion, that this show turns it around and gets back to some of those stories that we were seeing before the break. I think we need Mumra's presence. Yes, very much so. Very much so. I think that was a big part of it. The whole thing with Wiley Kid and Wiley Cat, that song being from their mother, it did tear at the heartstrings a little bit for me. That was the one thing about it. Maybe the music was a little lame. I think they should have just left it as they referenced the song that had the elephants play that music with them and then moved on from that idea. Yes, exactly. It was good in that sense that it was a reminder of the dead mother or missing mother. We don't know that she's dead for sure. The missing mother, and that would have been good. And if they had defeated the rock creature another way, that would have been fine. I just thought it was really lame that they came back to that. It was way too predictable. Yeah. But I I liked the, the elephant people. Get some of the philosophies they had. Okay. It was very, like, Asian culture type of stuff. I'm trying to think of which religion would be the best way to explain it. Well, it felt to me very Zen master. Zen, yeah, Zen master. You know, uh, Buddhist, Shaowain, or um, what is it, Shinto, yeah. the Japanese. It was very much in that Asian culture, and the Tibetan monks. Kind of a mixture of all, all those religions. And, and I love those... I love that culture, and I love how Lucas took those to make the Jedi. Right. These were very much like the meditating Jedi without the Force powers. Exactly, and that's, I think, they need to play up those kind of things. Yes. I think they were in the right place with this. And the nice thing was, I think the elephant people were a lot better than the burbles. Yes. The burbles seemed like a cutesy thing, where this felt like that they did some research into the elephant people to make us realize that they were similar to those types of religions like Zen. 
Yeah, the only thing was, I didn't understand why they made them elephant people if their memory was bad. Was that supposed to be a joke? Because elephants are supposed so. to have great memories. I think they made a joke out of that. Okay. They did their research wrong. I'm hoping it was a joke. And the other thing with the burbles, I don't know if that was a joke on the Care Bears or not, because they do have an audience that was around in the 80s when the Care Bears were big. Right. I don't know if that was a joke for us. It didn't work. Yes. But um, I don't know. And okay. again, that was the first episode back. That might have been a filler thing. We'll see. It's a first season. I think they're still trying to figure things out. But Mumra needs to come back, and we need to go back to the mutants and that kind of stuff. Hopefully this week that's what will be going down. I don't know. So with that, uh, we're kind of running low on time. So we're going to move along now to an episode of Psych. We're going to break out of animation now. Again, Psych can be as loony as a cartoon sometimes. And this episode fit that bill. So we're going to talk about the Psych episode that I thought was a lot of fun, Dead Man's Curveball. Psych you out in the end. Sean and Gus are asked by Santa Barbara's minor league baseball team's manager to look into the death of its hitting coach. The only way to keep everything under wraps is to go undercover, and Gus may take a hit on his dignity as the team mascot. This week's psych was another fun-filled romp to add on top of this show's sixth season home run streak because Wade Boggs was here, and also Danny Glover. Actually, along with Wade Boggs, this episode was made a lot of fun, thanks to some great comedic moments, featuring Sean and Gus terrorizing the world of minor league baseball, including Sean arguing with his dad over a call that he made his umpire at the end of an SBPD softball game, stealing a drunken baseball player's pants that he peed in for evidence, chewing on Snyder's party or trail mix as a replacement for chewing tobacco, and Gus attempting to be a tap-dancing mascot, only to be forced by fans into doing the worm. But at least he kind of got his revenge on some unruly fans by blasting them with a t-shirt launcher. Also, for the people who weren't really baseball fans, there were some great moments to keep you interested, such as a hilarious sequence with Sean on speed, then a scene with Woody which once again steals the show in his moments in every episode, where he had a strong desire to whack a watermelon with a baseball bat, even though there wasn't really a reason for him to do that. In my opinion, my favorite moment in this episode was when Sean, undercover as the hitting coach, ran out to the mound to tell the pitcher that his wife was having an affair, causing a brawl to occur between his own team and Gus performing an awesome drop kick on one of the baseball players while in his mascot costume. On that note, for those of you who are movie buffs, you might have recognized that the idea of a baseball player getting angry over his teammates sleeping with his wife was a direct reference to Sean's dad, a.k.a. Corbin Bergson, the actor who plays him's character in the movie Major League. Speaking of Sean's dad, I enjoyed seeing a conflict between Henry and Sean that dealt with the manager of the minor league baseball team, played by Danny Glover, going to Sean for help instead of Henry, who was obviously the more experienced detective. This was a great move on the writer's part, because I've missed the plot lines where Sean and his dad tend to work out their social issues or differences since he rejoined the SPPD. And it was nice to see this again. 
continuing with this idea of conflict, Sean accusing the baseball player he looked up to as a kid of murder multiple times in this episode seemed to address what appeared to be a reoccurring theme for this season of heroes not always being what they're cracked up to be. And I'm wondering if the feeling Sean experienced in regards to this baseball player that the Mantis, the vigilante hero from last week, are going to come into play, helping him make things right with Jules, which he discovers he's not psychic. So in knowing that you can't shoot Wade Boggs, what was your thoughts on this episode of Psych, Nico? I love this episode. Not only did it reference Major League, but it pulled from all the great baseball comedies, yes. especially my favorite, Bull Durham. <laughs> the speech that Sean gives outside the batting cages is a cleaner version of the great speech Crash Davis, played by Kevin Costner, gives to Annie, played by Susan Sarandon. Also, all the scenes where Sean was repeating what Danny Glover said was straight out of Bull Durham, where the assistant coach would repeat what the manager was saying. It's classic. Gus was amazing, as always, but the scenes with him as the mascot were awesome. When he two-foot drop-kicked the shortstop, that was amazing. And I couldn't help help but actually laugh out loud for that. (laughs) My only question is, where were Jules and Lassie in this episode? I mean, they were almost non-existent. But I guess it really worked, because... It was not until the very end of the episode that I realized that they were hardly in this episode. Yeah. This was a great episode, and indeed, they have not missed the season. Every single episode has been a hit, and the entire season has been a home run so far. Keep it up, guys. And you gotta love Woody with the watermelon, too. Oh. (laughs) Woody was hilarious. And he kept saying, (laughs) I'm gonna hit one of you, uh, the watermelon. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it was good stuff. And uh, how about Henry with that awesome takedown? Yeah, very reminiscent of the catch from last week. Yes, it was. That was great. And I forgot to mention, that was just a great way of them resolving that plot line of Henry getting jealous about the manager going to Sean for help. So I'm glad they kept it off with a awesome moment for Henry. There was a lot of violence for the supporting characters this week. If you think about it, with Gus yeah. dropkicking the guy and Woody wanting to whack people with baseball bats. And Sean shooting security guards with a t-shirt gun. Yes. And that whole sequence where he was running around in the costume in the stadium was hilarious. That yeah, was pretty good. And driving the blueberry. This was pretty much just an episode of funny moments. Yeah, one after the, the next. It was a string of funny moments that made for a great episode. Now, was there anything you wanted to talk about story or conflict-wise or anything like that? No, I I felt like even the mystery was pretty good this week because we kept going around and he kept coming back to his favorite player and thought that it's got to be him. No, it can't be him. It's got to be him. Oh, I'm so glad it's not him. Oh, it's him again. Even I was starting to question because he is a, a semi-big actor from Battlestar yep. and some other stuff. He Castle played An- too. Yeah, Castle. He played Anders on Battlestar, and he was Beckett's boyfriend on Castle. So we've seen this guy before, and so I got sucked into the idea, oh, there's a face I recognize. He's going to be the killer this week. And they did a good job to steer us that way a couple times and ultimately go a different route. So I thought the mystery this week was excellent as well. 
it wasn't just about the comedy this week. And, and that's what's great about Psych is they do both very well. Yeah, and it was nice that they threw in Danny Glover in there too, which was a reference to Angels in the Outfield. Yes, indeed. Another baseball movie. So that was the other great thing is that they paid respect to so many other great baseball movies as well. They always have great throwbacks, and this was just perfect. So it's great. All right, so now we're going to move on to the Big Bang Theory section for this week with our Big Bang Bazinga. That again, this was a hilarious episode called the Ornithobia Diffusion. All started with the Big Bang. Sheldon tries to cure his phobia of birds while Leonard and Penny experiment with hanging out alone. My Big Bang Bazinga, or funniest moment for this week's episode, would have to be Sheldon versus the Blue Jay, which he affectionately named Lovey Dovey at the end of the episode. And I especially enjoyed the scene where he went after her with a broom and a Boba Fett helmet, causing the bird to land on his coveted spot on the couch. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment or Big Bang Bazinga from this episode? My Big Bang Bazinga was either Leonard having a great time on his non-date with Penny because he could actually say and do whatever he wanted, or the whole Sheldon versus the Blue Jay. Just the whole concept of it, that he's so afraid of a Blue Jay that it was it was funny. And when he pulled out the Boba Fett hat, I was... I was laughing so hard. I thought the only way this could have been better is if he pulled out a Vader helmet. But Boba Fett was just off enough that you're like, well, anybody could have a Vader helmet. A Boba Fett is a true Star Wars fan. Which Sheldon is, as we all know. Exactly. So great stuff. Hilarious episode. Again, this show is always consistently funny, and Sheldon never lets us down, and he for sure did it this week. So with that, we're going to move on to the other hilarious show that's on at the same time as Big Bang Theory, Community, with the episode Studies in Modern Movement. The group tries to help Annie move in with Troy and Abed, but things go awry when she becomes frustrated by their lifestyle. Meanwhile, Dean Pelton blackmails Jeff into spending the afternoon with him. My community chuckle this week would have to be Jeff and the Deeds karaoke rendition of A Kiss from a Rose by Seal and all of the montage sequence that went along with that and also the capper to the sequence that it ended up on Twitter, which was quite hilarious. And I loved how the episode ended with the whole cast singing the song to kind of razz Jeff. And I was also amused by Annie's room in Troy and Ahmed's apartment being a blanket for it to make room for their imaginarium where they had imaginary virtual adventures which is quite hilarious so nico what was your thoughts on this episode dan we were on the exact same page my community chuckle was a mix between the video karaoke with jeff and the dean and the puppet show with jeff crying at the end when the horse dies that is just great stuff also, how cool was it that Abed at Troy and now Annie have a hollow deck on the, in their apartment? I want one. Come on. Do you want a real hollow deck or an imaginary one? I'll start with the imaginarium, but I want the real hollow deck. Come on, scientists, get on that. Yeah, that would be pretty sweet. Also, it was quite hilarious with Jeff 
using various devices at the gap to fake that he was sick and in the hospital. Yeah, that was pretty genius. Yeah, rock solid opening. So with that, we're going to move on to a show that had a pretty funny episode from the standpoint of the main characters and the romance going on. On the terms of something that's normally funny about this show, it didn't really go the way I thought it would, but we'll leave that up to discussion after I'm through with my thoughts on this episode. So now we're going to talk about the Bones episode, The Hot Dog in the Competition. A competitive eating champion's body is found shortly before the next major competition. Following a disagreement over the baby, Booth and Brennan attempt a little role-playing. Back at the lab, Brennan's new assistant seems a mismatch despite his genius. This week's episode of Bones continued on the path of proving that even though they're together, Bones and Booth's relationship is still highly entertaining to watch. By them teaching each other the life lessons that will make them good parents to their daughter. And in this episode, Bones failing to tell Booth that she had an ultrasound, which revealed they're having a daughter, caused the happy couple to learn an important lesson about communication. With Bones' decision to step in to Booth's shoes, creating all sorts of hilarious moments throughout the episode, including Bones tackling a possible suspect. However, with all the scenes between Bones and Booth being rock solid, the main topic of discussion regarding this episode is the new intern, Finn Abernathy, and what everyone thinks about this character. And at first, I was totally opposed to the character, because I thought he created way too much tension, especially when characters like Fisher and Vincent Nigel Murray caused me to designate the intern role as comic relief, or to give us a reprieve from the drama. Plus, I did not like how incredibly cruel Hodgins was when he was first introduced to Finn. I get the fact that Hodgins is known for being grumpy, but this was a little too much, to the point that it felt like Hodgins broke up with Angela again, which was really weird and off-putting. I just, it kind of turned me off. And again, after he scared the snake into throwing up, and the nicknames Opie and Thurgood were playfully exchanged between him and Hodgins, Finn began to warm up to me. But I couldn't shake my developing opinion that Finn is a variation of Wendell with a southern accent and more backstory. With that being said, I'm not going to fully embrace this idea of Finn being a variation of Wendell without giving him another episode, because I really like the idea that Bones' paper or article stopped him from killing his stepfather, because it effectively eliminated the conflict that Bones was having throughout Season 6 and at the end of Season 5 over her work only helping the dead and not people who are alive. Speaking of Finn's stepfather, I'm going to wrap up things on my end by handing things over to you, Nico, with the question. Do you think that this stepfather and the possibility that Finn killed him will be a reoccurring story arc throughout the season? Then also, as usual, can you provide us with your thoughts on Bones? No, Dan, I do not think this will be a reoccurring theme. I think they got it out of the way early and may come back to it at a later time. When they do revisit it, it will be because maybe the stepfather's remains have been found and everyone will suspect him again. But it will be proven that he is not involved and clear his name once and for all. So I don't see it as a reoccurring theme where they're going to 
rehash it over and over or multiple episodes. I think one more time we're going to see this again. It'll be a callback later in the season. Also, I think this intern's seriousness, this Finn character was so serious because it gives Cam a reason to be on the show still. Okay. Because she seems very useless so far this season, and this tension in the lab gave her something to do in this episode, and maybe it's going to be what brings her into the story arc this season, because she's, as I said, was very useless in the first episode. Now, this was a fun episode of Bones. Booth and Brendan were great, especially the whole part with Bones walking in Booth's shoes and her just randomly stating that she was thinking about intercourse multiple times throughout the episode. (laughs) But the best part of the episode was the interaction between Opie and Thurston, or Finn and Hodgins. Their interactions was as close after they got over their initial rough patch. Yeah. Their interaction was as close to Zach and Hodgins as we've seen since Zach left the show. And so I enjoyed their banter. And I think the only thing that could have made it a little bit better would have been a great opportunity at some point for Hodgins to drop a King of the Lab reference. But it didn't happen. It could be coming. That's exactly what I think. It will happen. And then we might get that running joke again. Because Wendell started doing it with Hodgins, but we saw Wendell once, but we haven't seen him in every episode, and I thought he was going to be that character. But I think we're going to get a switch-off between Finn and Wendell the rest of the season. Yeah, and we're actually going to have Daisy next week. Oh, I didn't even know Daisy was coming back. That's awesome. So they're going to result or talk about Sweets' whole situation with his love life. So that'll be good. Yeah, it's about time. We haven't heard anything about Sweets and his love life since the episode where they decided not to try as hard. You know what I'm saying? And we haven't really heard anything about it since. And Daisy's been gone for way too long. Right, exactly. It's almost conspicuous. Right. Or inconspicuous. Conspicuous, yes. (laughs) It's... A problem, or not a problem, but you notice that she's been gone for too long and nothing's been said about it. So that hopefully will be rectified next week. Exactly. Okay. I still really like Wendell as well. Yeah. And I think the relationship, him and Hodgins, works very well too. So if this is just to give us another character for that opportunity, that's fine. That's good. And I agree with your point about Cam. She needs something to do. Yeah, this is more interesting than her daughter and that plot line. Right, her daughter should be off working that year off that she took so that she can get into school on her own. So we shouldn't see her. Right, exactly. And if this is the last season, then what is she going to do while her daughter's off working? It just doesn't make any sense. She does all the biological remains as opposed to the osteological remains. She does all the work with that. This is bones, you know. Most of the real major clues don't come from the organic portion. It comes from the osteological remains. Exactly. And so her contribution to the cases can't be every week. So she needs something. Exactly. Well, I think that just about covers it for this episode. Again, I think this season is very strong. It started out a lot stronger than last season did. Oh, absolutely. So kudos to them on that and the Bones and Booth 
relationship is just as strong as I think it was in the beginning of the show. So props to them on that for changing things up, but still keeping it just as good as it's been. So with that, we're going to move to another show that somewhat had a relationship shake up. Again, this one's gone backwards instead of forwards. So we're going to talk about the Fridge episode and those we've left behind. An electrical engineer and his wife, a professor of theoretical physics, are involved in a series of time loop anomalies. From an overarching standpoint, this week's Fringe established the idea that Olivia and her team have to deal with damage that has been done to the fabric of time on top of a collision between two universes. But when it came down to it, this episode itself dealt with Peter showing the Fringe team in a timeline where he never existed that he's a hero, not a villain. On that note, Peter was able to prove that he is the hero of this story thanks to a trademark that we've all come to expect from this show. The memorable one-off character, which this show does oh so well. And in this episode, the one-off character was an electrical engineer, played by Office Space's Stephen Root, who used a formula his wife created to build a machine that put a time bubble around his house, which reverted his wife back to the person she was before developing Alzheimer's. And this whole situation gave Peter an opportunity to prove himself, because he risked his life by putting on the device that Dr. Bishop created that entered the time bubble to stop the damage that it was causing, even though there was a risk that his body could implode like the poor FBI agent in this episode. And honestly, that's a horrible way to go out. Again, focusing on these concepts of time bubbles and time loops, they can sometimes be really complicated to explain to a television audience. And I thought the writers did a great job here of explaining things in a very clear fashion. I also liked how they regulated the idea of deja vu only to the scene at the train crossing, while still keeping the story moving forward. Because a sequence being repeated throughout an entire 42-minute TV show or a two-hour movie would get on my nerves. Which is why I don't like the movie Groundhog's Day, which Peter actually referenced in this episode. As for issues with this episode, I did not like the attitude that Olivia gave Peter when Dr. Bishop got upset with him for using his lab. Thankfully, Olivia worked out her issues with Peter for the most part by the end of this episode. But I felt that Anna Torf played this scene totally wrong. I mean, Olivia was right in making Peter see things from Walter's perspective, but her character comes across to me as a skeptic. So it was very off-putting that she had that much animosity towards Peter feeling bad about Walter not seeing him as his son, which she normally keeps her emotions guarded. Finally, and ending my side of the discussion with some speculation, I have a feeling that Peter is going to discover that finding a way back to the timeline where he existed is not possible. I'm not necessarily sure how to explain that from a scientific standpoint, but from a storytelling aspect, it doesn't make sense to go back to that timeline, because its story is done, and Peter having to reestablish his relationship with all of the other characters, that making Olivia fall in love with him again, gives the writers enough material to make it through at least one more season, or possibly more, if Fox gives Fringe that chance, or the audience. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode of Fringe? Fringe. 
Dan, my mom postulated an idea that at first glance I shot down as being utterly ridiculous and not following the continuity of the story arc. But after this episode, I had to go back and give some careful consideration to her theory. And upon doing so, her once ludicrous theory seems almost plausible. Now, her theory is that the reality in which the show currently lives is not the original reality we have been viewing for the first three seasons, but we are now in a new third reality connected to a fourth reality that are mirrors to the two we were originally viewing. Anyone out there confused yet? Yeah, I thought so, though. Well, you can see why I dismissed it out of hand initially. But after this week's episode where Olivia and Peter seem to imply that he is in the wrong place... This makes a little more sense now in my mom's theory. I still think it is a timeline issue and not a dimensional issue, but I can't dismiss her theory out of hand as simply as I initially did. And Dan, I have to agree with you. The story arc from the original timeline is finished, so it makes more sense for us to see Peter and Olivia fall in love again in this timeline or in this dimension, but do it differently And along those lines, I'm thinking we may see Olivia start a new relationship before she comes back to Peter. And by then, Peter will have been forced to move on and may have a new love interest by then. So we're going to get that start and stop that we always get get in the middle of shows. And the whole not being the right time for Peter when Olivia is finally ready and not the right time for Olivia when Peter is back to being single. Much of what we originally talked about with Castle and Beckett. Right. That's how I see the love story going for this show, at this point, anyway. Because we are going to see that love story start up again. I just don't know if we get another season. If Fox does the right thing and tells them far enough ahead, we will see that love story play out over the entire last season. If not, then we will see it in the second half of this season. Now, finally, I love the time jump sequence with the train portion of the case. Yes. I felt that this was brilliantly done in this episode and it was a lot of fun seeing Peter jump. And if you're not used to that, it can be quite startling and you don't understand, but I thought they did a very good because initially Peter was, was shocked. And so you saw that shock and you could realize, wait a second, I didn't miss something. I didn't skip through a commercial or something accidentally knocking the, the clicker. no, This was designed this way, and it was really well done. And these are the things that make this show amazing, and I love when they do something that you don't see often on other series. This was a great episode with great writing, and and the execution was amazing. And as usual, I love this episode. Yep, another great episode of Fringe. Exactly what we expect from this show. And I think it's gotten stronger since Peter's been back as well. Oh, absolutely. I love Joshua Jackson on this show. I, I love Joshua Jackson. Let's, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> I don't need to qualify it to this show. Yeah. I love Joshua Jackson. But especially on this show, he is great. And this show is ten times better with Joshua Jackson on it. Not that it was terrible without him, but it's so much better when he's there. Yes. And you're absolutely right. He is the hero of this story. We talked a lot last season about it being a father and son show. And Olivia's a lot better than she used to be, or Anna Torv is a lot better, and the character Olivia is a lot better as well. But she's kind of a secondary hero. 
Peter is the primary hero, and the interaction between him and Walter is the main driving force of this show. Exactly. And so without him, we were missing that driving force. And we knew it was coming back, so we could tolerate it. And it wasn't like we had to tolerate early season six of Supernatural or something like that. No, these were still good, solid episodes. But it was not as good as it has been since he returned. Exactly. So that was great. And in terms of the relationship thing, I think they did a very good job in making Olivia and Peter not be together related to the sci-fi aspect of the show instead of them just breaking up. Yes. I think that would have frustrated people. Very much so. That would have been like, you know, a Chuck and Sarah breakup or Bones and Booth breaking up after now having this baby. It just would have been too difficult the way that they went. But then the fact that they blamed it on the sci-fi, that it was an emotional thing, that works perfectly. And because this show is a sci-fi, they're lucky enough that they can get that out. Something like Castle couldn't pull that off because that takes place in more of a real world compared to Fridge, which is sci-fi based. Exactly. So props to them on that great writing and another great one-off character as well. So with that, I think we're going to move on to an episode of Chuck that was also, I thought, very strong. The show seems to be getting more back on track. I thought the premiere was lackluster, but now it seems to be building up more and more. And that's certainly how a Chuck season goes. So we're going to talk about the build-up, the momentum in Chuck with this episode, Chuck versus the Frosted Tips. Chuck has some fears about Morgan having the intersect and it going to his head. Elsewhere, Sarah helps Casey navigate his relationship with Gertrude Verbansky. And in the meantime, Devin is spending his paternity leave with baby Clara at home, but quickly finds it unexciting. And that leads him to the Bymore, where he makes a startling revelation about Jeff and Lester. This week's Chuck was a solid episode because it was set up in the way to make the majority of the characters on this show an integral part of this week's story regarding Morgan's decision to join Verbansky Corp, causing a fallout between him and Chuck. Obviously, the part that Chuck and Morgan had to play in this episode revolved around their conflict, which was handled and resolved really well thanks to a story about 7th grade Morgan, which included the classic prank maneuver of pantsing and Morgan putting his mustache hair in a girl's sandwich. As for the other supporting characters, I really liked the part that Sarah had to play in this episode as the voice of reason, telling Chuck that his hurt feelings might be blinding him to the fact that the intersect in Morgan's head might be malfunctioning. This, in turn, set things up excellently for Ellie to enter the story, with the intent of her expertise regarding the intersect, giving Team Bartowski a way to help Morgan. And from here, General Beckman enters the equation, revealing that she did not send Chuck the sunglasses with the intersect inside, meaning that someone is out to get our hero. Moving on, the part that Casey had to play in this episode dealt with him probably being hurt the most by Morgan's negative attitude caused by the malfunctioning intersect. But when it came down to it, P literally stole the show for me with his reaction to the horrible realization that Morgan dumped Alex 
which was crazy on his part, and him doing it through texting, and the whole romance between Casey and Verbansky, which fit his character perfectly, as well as his career as a spy. Meanwhile, at the Woodcomb residence, we got a hilarious montage of Captain Awesome taking care of baby Clara that led to them paying a visit to the Bymore, where poor Clara had an awkward encounter with Lester, and Awesome gave Jeff an examination, which stunningly made him normal, foreshadowing the possibility that a Jeffster breakup could be in the future, with the intent of building up to one final epic performance from them in the series finale. In ending my side of the discussion, I've got to say that I like the idea of this episode's events putting Morgan in a position where everyone is out to get him due to the intersect. Because in regards to Luke Skywalker being used as the inspiration for Chuck, the writers of this show have hit things right on the money in regards to finishing out his character arc with a satisfying conclusion by the Jedi becoming a master to defend his best friend. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this exciting and action-packed episode of Chuck? Dan, finally a Chuck episode I could get into. This was a lot of fun, and they fixed the whole Morgan being a traitor and ass all in one episode. And I liked the way they brought Morgan back to himself. Though still having issues, at least he recognizes that something is wrong. And they did that by pantsing him and then Chuck saving him despite Morgan being a huge jerk and saying they weren't friends anymore. And it really showed that Chuck has come beyond just being the former intersect, that he is that, as you said about Morgan and Chuck being Luke Skywalker, I think they're both kind of making that transition from the novice to the master. And I think that's really, I, I thought the way you said that was really cool. And I I really like this episode, but I did have a couple gripes with it. My questions are, what are they doing to Jeffster? (laughs) Will there even be a Jeffster with Jeff's new makeover? And where was Big Mike? The store was completely empty. Where's Big Mike? He's supposed to be the assistant manager. He's supposed to be there like all the time. So I don't don't know. Just a couple things I noticed. I think it's budget issues, to be honest. Yeah, it absolutely has to be. Yeah. This episode of Chuck was good, but there are a lot of classic gags and themes that seem to be left out, such as the importance of the buy more. Though they did have Awesome show up and save Jeff and Lester, it just doesn't seem to have the same importance to every episode as it used to have. And it was really a great thing how the buy more mirrored what was going on mission. Right. And we're not seeing that this episode, and I kind of miss it because it seems to me to be very classic Chuck. But on the other hand, it was nice to see General Beckman back, so maybe I'm expecting them to fit too much into each episode. But as a final note, the Chuck numbers are kind of bad. Yeah. Not terrible. They they were terrible. This episode was better. But... If this was not already the final season, I'm pretty sure Chuck would be canceled. But do you think NBC is stupid enough to piss off the 3 million fans that regularly watch this show and cancel it early? 
God, I hope not. I doubt that, it. That would be a huge mistake. They can't punch in a rerun that's going to get more than 3 million views. And this one got 3 million views, 3.1 million views. So, Also, I think the episodes are all already in the can. Yeah. Or close. Because they're having Ryan McPartland, who plays awesome, popping up on one of the Fox sitcoms. Okay. And I don't know if he's a reoccurring character or what he is, but the Chuck people are seem to be appearing in other projects and other shows. Yeah, my guess is they're done. They yeah. knew they had 13. They went and shot 13, and it maybe some stuff is still in pre or post-production, but principal photography, shooting the episodes, it's all done. Yeah. But NBC is stupid. Yes. I mean, there's no <laughs> other way to put it. They decided that they were going to take their entire... 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Central time slot and drop scripted television from it. Yeah. And that was their business model. Being stupid is not a business model. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not going to gripe on NBC too much. They, they did go from number one to number ten in the networks even though there yeah. are only four networks. They dropped from the top spot, the best best in the business, as maybe five years ago. Maybe I'm, I'm saying it too soon, too big of a decline. Yeah. But still, dropping four slots in four years or five years, they went from the top to the bottom real fast. To their sister network having better shows than better oh, programming than that, which is yeah. USA. Absolutely. USA, <laughs> Sci-Fi. Showtime, all of the things that used to feed to NBC, or when NBC went into syndication, it would go to the sister channels. They all have better original programming. It's almost like they should maybe syndicate Psych on NBC primetime because it's better than any of the other stuff they're putting out there. I think something like Burn Notice could easily work. Yeah, a new show like... No, I mean, not a, a direct yeah. knockoff or anything, but that because that, they're not going to jump a, a show that has a loyal following on USA to the right. prime time just because it's already too far along. You know, they're in the, the second half of the fifth season right now. So it would be too late for that show. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Something like that, Psych, uh, Monk, when it was yeah. on, would have been. I, I would even throw Alphas out there. Oh, Alphas, they, if they re-ran season one on NBC, would be amazing. Yeah. And it would kill. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I, I don't know what this network's thinking, what they're doing. I don't think they're going to pull out the plug on Chuck before it's over. I think they gave him the 13. That's the deal. That's not going to change. So I think you can so. breathe easy with that. Plus, the other thing is, I wanted to ask, what did you think of the KC plotline in this episode? It was ridiculous, but funny, <laughs> you know? I think they're going to continue to come back to it. Okay. And they didn't want to go too far, too fast, too early. Right. So I think they're going to come back to it over the next couple episodes or maybe later in the season. I don't know how many episodes she's signed on for, but it would be nice to see him continually get one up on her and maybe there there be some something there although 
you and I have both said that it would be kind of nice to see him get back with Alex's mom. Yeah. But they haven't seemed to gone that way. And I think they're leading towards this Verbansky relationship. Well, and the whole uh, Strangers in the Night being played. <laughs> that one sequence. Outstanding. Just great stuff. I mean, I love Adam Baldwin as that character. I loved him as Jane on Firefly, of course, too. But it was fun that they really got to have fun with the John Casey character this week. And I can't wait for more. I think that when Chuck is done... And five years from now, we're looking back. Are we going to think of, when we think of Baldwin, are we going to think of him as Jane? Or are we going to think of him as John Casey? And I am a huge Firefly fan. It's my favorite series of all time. But I got to tell you, when I see him, I think of Casey first nowadays. And maybe that's because it's more fresh in my mind. Although I did just watch Firefly again. But, you know, so I think he is so good as John Casey that it may overshadow how great he was as Jane. Well, and you can make the same argument about Nathan Fillon as well. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, fortunately, because we both love Castle, but (laughs) Malcolm Reynolds is iconic. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And again, five years from now, we could see Adam Baldwin as another character. That is the truth. Because, I mean, I think he's popular enough that he could be on another show. So with that, kind of speaking of romances, we're going to talk about a surprise romance that occurred on television this week with the Supernatural episode Season 7, Time for a Wedding. When Sam teams up with a familiar face, Dean is forced to team up with a laid-back hunter, Garth, and ends up working at cross-purposes to his brother. This week's Supernatural involved the writers going back to a classic from their bag of tricks. The idea that there is a series of books that exists within the constraints of the show's universe. By having Sam marry Becky, a super fan of the books, who was last seen in the Season 5 episode where the Winchesters ended up at the Supernatural fan convention while searching for the cult to kill Lucifer. However, before all of you start freaking out that Sam marrying Becky means Supernatural is flying off the rails, it turns out things aren't what they seem to be, as it is revealed that Becky is using a love potion on Sam provided to her by a Wiccan who is actually a demon. With that being said, this plotline of Sam marrying Becky came along at the perfect time, because now that the show is back on track, the writers had the perfect opportunity to use Becky the superfan as a means to bash the crazed female Supernatural fans to ruin Season 6 for us manly fans, such as Nico and myself. Again, with me using the word bashing, the intention of the writers comparing Becky to the crazed female Supernatural fans out there, was not to call them out. It was more to playfully give them a hard time, which was made clear by Becky making the right decision at the end of the episode to help Sam and Dean defeat the demon. Another fun aspect in this episode was the appearance of DJ Qualls from the movie's Road Trip and the New Guy 
as the unlikely hunter Garth. When it comes down to it, DJ Qualls is a pretty funny guy, and the same went for Dee's reaction to him, as well as them working together. But I found myself wanting a little more, so I'm hoping that we'll get to see Garth again, especially if it comes with a glimpse at his relationship with Bobby. Also, speaking of Bobby, I was kind of disappointed that we didn't get to see his reaction to Sam getting married. But you know what they say, you can't have Mark A. Shepard and Bobby too. Finally, even though this episode was designed to be fun, we still got some great development when it came to the Winchester brothers' relationship, including this scene where Sam, under the love potion, told Dean that he didn't need him anymore, and the episode ending with Dean accepting that Sam has grown up and can live his own life. Yes, I know that Dean has said he's come to this realization twice before on this show, but hopefully it's for real this time. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this excellent episode of Supernatural? This was sort of a crazy episode of Supernatural that I'm going to give a pass because it was fun to see the writers make fun of themselves with the whole Becky situation, like you said, Dan. Also, the story was not all that bad. Very predictable and not very imaginative at times, but they pulled it off well enough for me to give it a pass. I've been enjoying Supernatural too much lately that I could not love every episode. And this is one of those ones that at the end of the season, I will look back on and give it a, meh, it wasn't bad. Well, at least not as bad as season six sort of review. (laughs) That being said, I did not enjoy all the, or I did enjoy all the throwback references to the glory days of Supernatural. So that was fun. And we got our man Mark A. Shepard back as Crowley. And not the whining, sniveling Crowley, but the good old King of Hell Crowley, the demons fear, and could, if he wanted to, make the Winchester's life a living hell. Great to see him back to form, and I loved it. And as for DJ Qualls as a guest host, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. It's not that I'm not a fan of DJ, but he can really be hit or miss. Yeah. Road Trip, for example, awesome. New guy, I thought terrible. First season of Memphis Beat, pretty solid. Second season was half the time he was a hit and completely, utterly terrible on the other half. So him playing the awkward, inexperienced hunter was pretty good. And I was satisfyingly taken by surprise. Again, I just missed Bobby in this episode a little bit. Yeah, you know, you didn't even hear his voice. So he was completely out of this episode. Again, budget reasons could be. Or unavailable. Or unavailable. That's true, too. Because Jim Beaver does do a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I think my miss this season was the witch episode with James Marsters. And I think yours is this one. Yeah. So we've kind of flip-flopped on what we thought with that. But, again, everyone's got their one, I think. Yeah. And like you said, that one didn't really work for you. And I loved it. But... This one really seemed to work for you, and I was kind of, eh. So, exactly. Each of us have the ones that we just really identify with or really find something that speaks to us, or they do something early on, and you just buy into it. And I didn't buy into this one early on, so it wasn't that great for me. Whereas, I did like that they threw it back to the novels and brought that up in a couple Uh, references to that 
And so I did like that, but I just didn't – the whole thing with him, and, uh, with Sam and Becky just didn't do it for me this week. And maybe that was just my mind frame when I was watching the episode yesterday. I was in a car driving for, <laughs> you know, right. 2,000 miles uh, in two days. So it might have just been my state of mind in the car yesterday when I was watching it. But it was it was enjoyable enough. It passed a 42 minutes out of my drive, so that was great. <laughs> nice. But it, it just wasn't what I had come to expect this season because this season has been so good. Exactly. I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. But uh, here's the next week's episode being pretty solid. It looks good. They're going to go up against the Jersey Devil. Nice. So that could be exciting. So we've got that to look forward to this Friday night. And with that, I don't think there's much more to say about this episode. And also we're kind of running low on time. So why don't we move on to the closing and Nico, why don't you tell us what we've got going on next week? Unfortunately, next week we will not be covering Castle because there's not going to be a new episode. So we're going to be reviewing Young Justice, Thundercats, Person of Interest, Chuck, Fringe, and Supernatural, as well as our favorite funny moments from Modern Family, The Big Bang Theory, and Community. Also, if you'd like, you can check out our Smallville retro reviews posted by Michael J. Petty at Woo Kim available in podcast format on our website and they just basically choose random Smallville episodes and review them every week. The most recent episodes have been about various writers on Smallville and the episodes they've done. First they started out with doing episodes on the famous DC Comics writer Jeff Johns and now they've recently done an episode on another comic book writer Brian Q. Miller did the episodes of Smallville he's done. So that's really great. And they've also decided, just for the heck of it, to do a fun episode about Power Rangers. So if you grew up watching that show and to have somewhat nostalgia for it, check out that episode. I heard it's a lot of fun, and they were really excited about doing it. So we'll see how that turns out. Again, some of you might think Power Rangers is ridiculous, so it might not be for you, but check out their Smallville reviews, which I think will be back on track next week. So check that out. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us through email at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. And there you can click the like button on the page to access and join our Facebook page where you'll be provided with all the excellent TV news that Nico researches and finds throughout the week. Also, you can access our Twitter page, which also features news and updates regarding Michael's retro reviews. And you can access that by going to Across Airwaves. Again, there's no the there. It's just Across Airwaves. And also, if you'd like to talk to us about any of your thoughts on the shows we cover or Michael's reviews, you can leave us a voicemail. Now, what's that number, Nico? 773-809-3363. Also, if you want more from Across the Airways, you can visit our YouTube channel run by Michael as well as Nico. And that features all sorts of promos and previews for Across the Airways upcoming events, as well as promos and previews for upcoming episodes of our favorite shows, along with some video reviews of some shows that we don't cover on Across the Airways done by Nico, and they're really well done. So give those a check out. 
And also, if you'd like, you can contact us in an easy way through downloading our Android app, which you can access by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our page. So check out that Android app. It's an easy way to access all the ways of contacting us just right through your phone. So with that, once again, for our Smallville Retro Review hosts, as well as our editor, Michael J. Petty, and his co-host, Boo Kim, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstead. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airways. Have a great week, everybody. Might have been a little fun. Huh? See? And you emailed your therapist that you wanted to be alone this weekend. <laughs> what? We now return to our regularly scheduled program.